0: The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast by Fresh FM, with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Kia ora and welcome to what will be the second part of the philosophical ramble that I started two weeks ago. I'm Lindsay Wood, the Director of Climate Strategy Company Resilience Limited, and Climate Matters is brought to you by Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access radio station. Fresh FM broadcasts in Blenheim on 88.9, to Eastern Golden Bay on 95.0, to the Nelson CBD on 107.2, and across the Nelson-Tasman region on 104.8. It's also streamed to the planet on freshfm.net, and podcasts of Climate Matters and of other locally produced shows are available through freshfm.net and through the accessmedia.nz app. Well, today we're picking up on the second part of what I originally described as an experimental series where I was basically um, running through a whole lot of thoughts and philosophical ideas that came to me on reflection of me being given the great honor of being appointed as a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit in the New Year's honors list. And So we'll just pick up where I left off before, and I do hope you get something out of it. Okay, let's get into it, and let's have a go at exploring the political system. Here we are on the 31st of December 2023, only a month or two after the new coalition government resolved itself or crystallized involving National with ACT Party and New Zealand First around them. You don't need anybody to tell you it's not a particularly climate-friendly party. Um, But my point is not whether I like that government or not, or whether they're climate-friendly or not. But I have for years and years felt that our adversarial political system is a serious impediment to really good government. What it means is that for a lot of the time, and particularly in a public arena, the different parties tend to tear each other down. We get a situation where each party, or most parties, have really good people in it. They have good ideas to put forward. They have promising initiatives. But for one party to to sort of really back the initiative of another party is something that we would very rarely behold. We did see it a little bit early on in the first COVID lockdown when National, I think it was then under Todd Muller, actually was on board as, a, as an emergency measure, working almost alongside Labour. And I thought then, wow, if only this could last. It had a bit of the feeling of what people might recall from the Second World War. Well, I don't think anybody's recalling that, but might have heard of, of a war cabinet, which was um, a cross-party cabinet that was made up to, to tackle a crisis rather than to pursue individual political dogma or agendas. So on the one hand, we've got good people in different parties. On the other, we've got a situation that sets them against each other. And in that process, particularly as they don't want to be seen to be patting the other party on the back, they tend to be adversarial. And therefore, the public is disadvantaged by not getting constructive debate and also by not getting good information. It's often skewed to suit particular sought outcomes and with with half-truths. And a word that I learned during the year, this was in a way the word of the year for me, poltering. Thank you, Mark Dalder of Newsroom for that. Paltering is where you take selective facts to create a distorted impression of what's really happening. I'll give you an example where um on a, a commentary in a news media uh, a couple of months ago, a climate denier posted a comment that said, but more people die from cold than from heat, and that's a rubbish comment to throw in. It has almost nothing to do with the discussion of whether we should be tackling climate change. Uh, it's, it's really not that much. You know, it, analyze it in your head, and you think, okay, even if more people do die from cold, that doesn't mean we should welcome a warming of the planet that generates all sorts of other crises and so on, and doesn't necessarily alleviate the issues that cause people dying from cold. So that was an, a little example of paltering, but there are lots more. Now I've lost my thread there. Oh, and so yes, in terms of public information, we get the skewed sense from the political debate. It is exacerbated by our three-year political term. Goodness, how I hope we extend extend that Um, But the point is, if we have a short political term or any political term characterized by adversarial politics like we've got, then what we have is a system where we don't have the best facility to A, grapple with the difficult issues, B, put in place serious long-term policies. So we have a situation where both parties agreed to the Zero Carbon Act and let's face it, that was a triumph, I think, primarily of James Shaw of the Greens, who was then climate change minister, and Todd Muller spoke very highly of that when in his period uh, with National. And it was a triumph for them. It was a cross-party agreement like they had in the UK, but the current government is thinking of winding that back or adjusting it, or at least some members of that government wish to. So we have to find a more robust way of establishing these critical measures. And so the mention that I made recently, I think a a short time ago, about looking for participatory democracy, one of the characteristics of that is a large group of citizens, maybe up to 100, that's what they have typically in Ireland, very carefully given access to really good information. They hear talks from experts, they have facilitated discussions they can request more information or ask questions and so on. And and by virtue of this very substantial and robust process, they reach a much better level of information. And And in a way, that's a way of diffusing the shortcomings of our adversarial political system. So if you factor in with that, a lot of the siloed information that we receive Becomes very hard. You can't expect politicians to become experts in everything. You can't expect them to spend hours and hours and hours reading not only a report, but the 20 reports that lie behind that report, and often in territory they're unfamiliar with. So they have to have access to really robust information. If you look at something like energy, a lot of the information is robust, a lot of it is not robust. We are going to be in for some big shocks on energy. For example, there's a lot of talk about hydrogen. It's being greatly overplayed in terms of its potential to contribute to an energy crisis that we'll be facing. There is almost zero discussion of the potential of reducing our energy demand. And yet, the reality is that we're almost inevitably heading towards a lower energy society. And that means living with a lot less energy, perhaps fewer lights, perhaps driving less, perhaps all sorts of other things, going on fewer long trips and so on. But the thing is also, let's not be scared of that. I'm recording this on New Year's Eve, as I mentioned, and on New Year's Eve, a lot of the people in the country are, where are they? They're away camping, they're away tramping and staying in tramping huts. They've got motor caravans and caravans all round the country. They're offshore cruising and so on. There are thousands of people who are choosing to spend their holidays in really quite spartan conditions. And I'll tell you what, for most of them, it'll be the highlight of their year. There will be a they don't do that because they feel they need some sort of um, purgatory or some sort of, I don't know, um, emotional cleansing or something. Well, maybe there is a bit of that. But But my point there is, and I'm not suggesting that we should spend our whole lives in a tent. What I'm saying is we shouldn't be scared of living a lower energy lifestyle. And not only should we not be scared of it, but it's something we should try to get our heads around because we'll find that there are a lot of opportunities. We are the most energy profligate community in history to give you an idea compared with the middle ages our current society uses roughly 70 that's 70 70 times the amount of energy per person and if you factor in the fact that we've got many 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 times the number of people that's a vast increase in the amount of energy even if we just dial back 50 or 100 years to our parents' or grandparents' time, they lived with only a fraction of the energy. They didn't have multiple cars per household. The houses themselves were a lot smaller. They didn't um, travel nearly so often in terms of flying or the greatly mobile holidays and all the rest of it. But I think we would be very arrogant to suggest that our lives now are vastly superior to what they are. We may, They may be a bit more spectacular as lives, but is our level of happiness any greater? I don't think so. So this brings me into the area that I said at the beginning, and I'm not sure I'm following a, a logical sequence here, it brings me into the issue of what I've called fool's errands. And I just want to pick up on a few things where I think We are striving to achieve things that aren't actually achieving very much at all. One of them is the idea that we need more and more money to be happy. But in fact, the research shows that that hardly matters at all as long as our essential needs are met. If you look, for example, at the celebrated book, The Spirit Level, by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, it actually demonstrated time and time again. That basically, for example, if you have more income, once you get beyond a certain level, then there is no particular gain in happiness. I'm sorry, I'm quoting from the wrong reference there. I'm pretty sure it was Tim Jackson in his book, Prosperity Without Growth, where he made the point that when people are at subsistence level or struggling to keep things on the table, get food on the table or clothe themselves, then extra income makes a huge difference to their lives. And it's very worthwhile. But there comes a quite a clear point when the improvement actually tapers right off, and a lot more income creates very little extra benefit or happiness for the people involved. So there is another question about that, and that is, what are we talking about in terms then of the, where that income should go. You know, there's been discussion, for example, about whether we should have a capital gains tax or a bigger, higher tax rate. And of course, the present government has um, come into office in part on a platform of reducing tax rates. So I want to make the point here, we've got a an increasing group of impoverished people. We've got a small group of wealthy people who are getting spectacularly more wealthy but in actual fact, take a small percentage of the wealth from the very wealthy and distribute it across the poorer people, and that will make almost no difference to the well-being and happiness of the wealthy people, but it'll make an enormous difference to the well-being of the poorer people. Um, And the other thing that, and I may go back to the spirit level, Kate, Wilkins- Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson, the other thing they found when they analyzed society after society and in all sorts of different conditions was that reduced income inequality actually makes the wealthier people happier on average as well, i.e. it's not just about improving the lives of the poorer sections of society, it's about making the whole of society better and more cohesive. Now, get a couple of other interesting points here. This is one that I only learned recently, and one of them I only learned this afternoon. The greatest income inequality since the war has been in English speaking countries. English speaking countries, the US, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the UK particularly, have had a dramatic increase. In income inequality, they have had associated declines in general levels of um, contentment in society and and other negative issues have escalated. The model societies that we tend to look at as being really good in this area are places like Scandinavia, Germany, um, France even, and they have much more level Income inequality there's not got no income inequality, but what they have not done since the Second World War is seen a spectacular increase in income inequality. So what is it about English speaking but the other thing that I learned today reading a report um led by Professor Rafe Chapman from Victoria University, it was actually a report about the cost benefit of um of active travel, amazing cost benefit that investment in providing active travel infrastructure in in cities yields a benefit of about 10 to 1 over the costs. What a spectacular return. Anyway, in Rafe Chapman's report, there were a whole lot of other authors, I'm not going to give their names. Um, in the report, he made almost as a side comment that nearly all the car-centric Development in the world that is the ones where people use very little public transport but an awful lot of car driving are nearly all English speaking or Anglophone, as Rafe referred to it in the report, so we have to also i think reflect what is it about our culture, our language? I'm sorry, I'm saying our apologies to to our tangata whenua, I'm not trying to exclude you from this, but obviously a discussion of the English-speaking peoples refers primarily to that English ancestry side of things. What is it about Anglophones and the English language and the people originating from England a long way back that gives rise to these two problems? I'm not quite sure, I want to get to the bottom of it, I'm not going to try and guess too much But they have both been presented recently to me as information that, wow, rather hit me between the eyes. So anyway, coming back to the question of holidays, and I'm getting towards the end of this session as well. I can see we've been running for over a quarter of an hour since I took the last break. The question is, I talked about holidays and all the people enjoying leisure time and things. In my discussions with people about how can we reduce our emissions on an individual basis, I've become astonished how desperately we each cling to what we see as our lifestyle. And I can't quite figure that out. I'd like to understand more about the psychology of it, but as I said before, I'm not a psychologist. I think it must be something to do with our personal identity. You know, if our lifestyle involves Sailing, then we, we see ourselves as a sailor. And if someone said give up sailing, and that's not what I'm saying, but if they said give up sailing, then you'd think, my God, that's, that's kneecapping who I really am. I had an example of this um, two or three years ago in a cafe with a bunch of friends. It wasn't in Nelson. And there was a discussion about, I think, three of the five of us or six of us around the table were looking at buying new cars. And one of them, who was actually a scientist, said, ah, I'd like to get an EV, but I really need a fossil fuel car to suit my skiing lifestyle. And afterwards, I learned that he hadn't taken his car skiing for many years. Um, So you think, well, isn't there a disconnect in there somewhere? And I think the disconnect becomes reconnected if you think it's not about actually going skiing. It's about looking like you're a skier belonging to the skiing community. So I think we're all caught in that trajectory of clinging to our lifestyles. Unfortunately, our lifestyles have evolved to be very energy profligate ones and with that becomes very high emission ones. Traveling overseas has become a big part of a lot of people's lifestyles. Um, I think we have to find ways of rethinking what it is that identifies us, if that is what identifies us, and realizing we can have a wonderful life and a wonderful self-image with a lot fewer emissions. I think I'm getting to... Oh, no, I'm not. (laughs) A little bit more on fool's errands. GDP and growth. I think we, a bit like the idea of income improving our happiness, more GDP does not improve our well-being, except when we are a very low socioeconomic Community or country. Again, there's research about this that shows uh, impoverished or underdeveloped countries. I'm not sure I like that term, but poorer countries who have a lot of hardship and so on, they benefit greatly from growth in their GDP. It improves their a lot of their services and so on. But once you get above a certain threshold, and it's not very high, then extra GDP does very little to improve your well-being. But it does a great deal to cause damage to the planet, um, it causes emissions, it causes reduction of critical resources, it causes biodiversity loss, and so on. And so the GDP growth thing is actually a thing that we really have to get our heads around. Kate Rayworth, the well-known researcher from UK, she's involved with at Oxford University and other places was the pioneer of what's known as donut economics. If you Google Kate Rayworth, her name is spelled R-A-W-O-R-T-H, and Arthur Grimes, G-R-I-M-E-S, and Radio New Zealand, R-N-Z, you will find a, a fascinating debate between two heavyweight econ- economists um, who can't agree, but the thing that's interesting about it is that Kate Rayworth has postulated a fascinating model, the donut economics model. Arthur Grimes just couldn't buy into it at all, and he couldn't, for want of a better word, decouple his thinking from the idea that you had to have growth in order to get some sort of prosperity. Now, I really am coming to the end now of this session. I think we'll have to give it a break at this stage. I just want to recap briefly on a few things. I want to dial back to the importance of being good ancestors. Uh, Kia ora for that, Miriam Stevens and her team at Wakatu Incorporation and the Iwi at the top of the South Island. I want to signal the importance of humility and how it could, should lead to us being less inclined to dig in trench positions, more inclined to seek consensus and being more willing to take on board new information, let go of ideas that no longer fit our models. I would hope that flows into politics better. there would be big changes needed to achieve that. I don't see us changing our adversarial political system in a hurry, but boy, I do hope that we do that. I'd also like to go on to make the point that there are several things that we try to do that actually have... um, if you like, negative consequences. I've talked about more money. I've talked about GDP growth. I've talked about building highways to ease congestion when they don't. I've also talked about the importance of trying to get our heads around lifestyles and the importance of reducing energy that we use in our lives and how well we can live with less energy. And then also there are questions of reducing inequality and the strange role that the English-speaking people have, in terms of promulgating problems both in terms of low density developments with a lot of car use and also in terms of high income inequality which promotes a lot of social problems. I'm going to end there, thank you. I don't know whether how many of you are still with me on this ramble, but thank you so much for joining me. This is Lindsay Wood signing off. I hope I enjoy your company again next week. Tenakoto, Tenakoto. Kenakoto Katoa. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM with support from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Tetoihu the top of the South Island, New Zealand. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website, freshfm.net, for our contact details.